It's the last day of Jesus' life. He has been betrayed, conspired against, denied, arrested, mocked, and beaten, accused of speaking blasphemy. The Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, hated Jesus and wanted him dead. Speaking blasphemy deserved the death penalty, but seeing they were under Roman rule, they could not carry out the death sentence. Their rights were stripped away. They could not execute anyone for any crime. The Jews were obligated to bring a case like this to the Roman governor. As we look at the last day of Jesus' life, Jesus encounters much. Much questioning, much cruelty, much humiliation, much pain, much suffering. It won't be easy to not feel the pain, to not feel the ache of his suffering and how he endured the cross. So as we journey through this difficult last day together, let me just pray for us as we begin. Lord, we can feel that we're too familiar sometimes with the Good Friday story. We pray that you help us as we spend time this morning reflecting on the last day of Jesus' life. May we take to heart the deep and significant meaning of the cross. May we fully understand what Jesus went through, being despised and rejected, being mocked and nailed to a cross. Open our minds and hearts to fully grasp what all this means, and may we sense your love and your mercy and your grace in a deeper way this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor over Judea, his job was to keep peace and exercise Roman justice. So the next step for the chief priests and scribes was to bring Jesus to the Roman governor, Pilate. They needed to convince Pilate that Jesus violated Roman law, because if they can do that, then Pilate can sentence Jesus to death, which is what they wanted. They knew that Pilate didn't care about their religious laws, so they needed to show how Jesus violated the Roman law. They came accusing Jesus of three charges. We saw in verse 2. One, we found this man misleading our nation. Two, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. And three, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. The first charge, misleading our nation. They accused Jesus of turning the nation into a rebellious way, perverting the practice of the nation. But we know this was false. He spoke nothing but peace and truth. The second charge, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. And we know that was false. Jesus encouraged it. We saw back in chapter 20 that Jesus taught the people to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. The third charge, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. That he claims he's Christ, the king. Well, yes, this was true. Jesus had told his disciples this. The people had declared it while waving palm branches. And he was asked by the Sanhedrin if he was the Son of God. As you say, was his reply. Was this enough now to make Pilate angry that perhaps Jesus was a king in opposition to Caesar? A king? Really? Here stood Jesus in front of him, frail, bloodied, beaten. This man, a king? So in verse 3, Pilate questions Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, You have said so. 
basically as you say. After this questioning, Pilate turns to the chief priest and to the crowds and gives his first rendering, his verdict. I find no guilt in this man. There's insufficient evidence. He is innocent. Well, the crowds wouldn't take that for an answer. They kept accusing, yelling that Jesus was stirring up the people all the way from Galilee to Jerusalem. Oh, whoa, wait a minute, Galilee? Pilate's ears perked up. From where? Did someone say Galilee? Oh, yes, this was an opportunity for Pilate to get out of this messy situation. Galilee, that's Herod's jurisdiction. Let's pass the buck to him. Herod's in town, so let Herod take care of this case. And so Jesus is sent over to Herod. Herod Antipas, the son of King Herod, Herod the Great. This Herod is the same one that had beheaded John the Baptist. He was the Tetrarch of Galilee, the ruler for the area of Galilee. In verse 8, we, saw, we see that when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him. Well, we might think that's a great thing. He wanted to see Jesus, to meet Jesus, to worship him. But no, he was hoping to see some sign done by Jesus. You see, for three years all over Galilee, in the cities and villages, Jesus was doing mighty things. He was healing, teaching, raising the dead. Herod had heard about him. He had plenty of opportunity to hear from him. But no, he hadn't spoken to him during that whole time of Jesus's ministry in Galilee. And now, all he wanted was for Jesus to perform miracles. He didn't really care what Jesus had to say. He didn't care to hear the truth. Herod wanted to be entertained. He demanded to see a miracle, a trick, a thrill. Show us who you are, prove yourself. In verse nine, so Herod questioned Jesus at some length, but he made no answer. Jesus said nothing, nothing. He had said nothing to Herod. Well, this, this left Herod in a very awkward position. Jesus was silent. Those in the crowd, the chief priests and scribes, they continued to passionately accuse Jesus. Herod and the soldiers then treated Jesus with contempt, with disrespect, sarcasm, ridiculing, mocking him, dressing him up in mock clothing of a king. In their view, he was no king. He was powerless. Herod couldn't find anything to charge against Jesus, so he sent them back to Pilate. Pilate and Herod had been rivals. They've been enemies. They hated each other. But now they had become friends. They had found common ground in this man named Jesus, a man that they both disliked. So now they have become friends over the fact that they didn't dislike someone. And if we just stop and think about that, we can say, oh, this type of situation, it wouldn't happen to us, not in today's age. But if we're honest with ourselves, how often do we see this happen? Two people, they really don't like each other. They have nothing in common. They really don't get along or they don't hang out with each other. They may not even want to sit on the same side of the church as each other. Oh, 
But then there's this talk going around, some, some juicy news, and they find out some dirt about someone. The one shares it with the other. Yeah, and they start to agree on, yeah, did you hear this? And did you hear that? And slowly they become friends over the dislike and gossip of an individual. Ladies, we need to guard our hearts to be careful and watchful of Satan's schemes because yes, this can happen today. So here's Pilate and Herod, these new friends giving two not guilty verdicts. Jesus is once again pronounced innocent. There's nothing guilty that either rulers could find. Yet Pilate says that he will therefore punish and release him. He will punish and beat someone who is innocent. And, and how crazy and wrong is that? And then he would release him. You see, it was customary during Passover that Pilate would, would release one prisoner to the Jews as a kind of goodwill gesture. But they all cried out together in verse 18, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Now Barabbas, as we, we read, he was a man who had started an insurrection in the city who had committed murder. He was a thief, a revolutionary, a danger to society, a high-profile killer, unquestionably as guilty as they get. This is the man who they wanted to release instead of Jesus, the teacher, the healer, the miracle worker, the one who was innocent. Verse 21, we hear them, crucify, crucify him. And a third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. They were loud. They wanted to get rid of Jesus. And Pilate, well, he just caved in. He caved into pressure. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent but he caved in. He feared the loud, fierce, overpowering crowd. He didn't want a riot. He did as the crowd demanded. He released Barabbas and sentenced Jesus to death. To be crucified on a Roman cross for crimes he hadn't committed, an innocent man. Jesus, who was sinless and innocent, took Barabbas's place, a sinner, and Barabbas is freed by Jesus' death. And this is our story as well. Jesus, who was sinless and innocent, took our place, we who are full of sin, and we are freed, rescued from death by the gracious work of Jesus. Innocent, yet crucified. Let me read to you the details of crucifixion. It's about um, one and a half pages long. It was a brutal form of execution devised by the Roman Empire, and it was reserved for the worst offenders. It was meant to inflict the maximum amount of shame and torture upon the victim. The prisoner was first severely scourged or beaten. He was severely flogged. The Romans had whips with nails, bits of glass, bone, or metal tied into the whip to make it more painful and effective. Flogging would sometimes last for hours. The prisoner was stripped of his clothing and his hands tied to a post above his head. Whipping 
creating lacerations brought down with full force again and again across the shoulders, the back, and the legs. At first it cut through skin, then it cut deeper, tearing open the flesh, blood pouring out of veins, tearing muscles, exposing ribs and organs. When the centurion in charge figures that the prisoner is near death, the beating is finally stopped. After such torture, the prisoner would be forced to carry a large wooden crossbeam to the site of the crucifixion. This beam weighed anywhere between 75 to 100 pounds. The procession or the parade would be in the most public of places where lots of people could witness it. He would be stripped naked to further shame him. He would be forced to stretch out his arms on the crossbeam where they were nailed in place. The nails or spikes were hammered through wrists. The nails pressed on large nerves running to the hands, obviously causing excruciating pain. The crossbeam would then be hoisted up and fastened to an upright piece that would normally remain standing between crucifixions. The prisoner's feet would then be nailed to the cross, normally one foot on top of the other, nailed through the middle and arch of each foot with the knees slightly bent. Three nails supported all the weight, causing pain to shoot throughout the body. Cramping, paralysis, collapsing muscles, all making it impossible to breathe. In order to take a breath, the victim had to push up with his feet. The victim's raw back would then rub against the rough, upright beam of the cross. A slow, torturous death, but some lasted as long as four days on a cross. In order to hasten death, the victim's legs might be broken. That way he couldn't push himself up in order to breathe. Oxygen would become depleted and asphyxiation would follow shortly after. Innocent, yet crucified. Jesus, he is now torn, beaten, bruised, abused, tortured, weak from blood loss. What can he possibly have left in him? How can he carry his own cross to the place of his crucifixion? In the crowd of onlookers, there was Simon of Cyrene, a foreigner from Cyrene, a city in northern Africa. He probably came to celebrate the Passover, and now he is seized and forced to carry Jesus' cross. What the Roman soldier tells you to do, you do. Otherwise, you might end up on the cross yourself. On the procession, we see in verse 27, And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Here's Jesus in his lifeless state. He still takes time to think of others, pouring out his concern for them, conversing with the women, telling them not to cry, but to weep for themselves. Weep for desperate times are coming. Pain is coming upon Jerusalem. Judgment is coming. Weep for Jerusalem. Verse 31, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? We can think of this as Jesus' last teaching. When the wood is green, referring to Jesus, the innocent one. When the wood is dry, referring to Israel, those who reject Jesus. 
If the Romans are willing to kill the sinless, innocent Son of God, what will happen to the unbelieving, rebellious Israel? Weep not for Jesus, for he's fulfilling the Father's will. In his perfect love, he suffered and endured all this pain for us. So weep not for him, but weep for your sin. They've arrived to Golgotha, Calvary, also known as the skull because the side of the hill resembles a human skull. There was Jesus, spikes through his hands and feet, lifted up on a cross to die with two other criminals, two other victims, one on his right and one on his left. But Jesus wasn't a victim. He wanted to be there. He was submitting to God's will and the love he had for you and me kept him up there. He could have saved himself, but he wanted to save us instead. Even while Jesus is intensely suffering and hanging on a cross, he then prays for his enemies. Let's look at verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgive them. They mocked him, they beat him, they crucified him, yet he forgave them. He gave them for their ignorance, for being blinded. They had no idea what was going on and how innocent Jesus was. What love is that? He is living out his words and, he, and what he had taught back in Luke 6. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. But do they care? Do they love him in return? No, they're gambling over his garments. Prophecy fulfilled, we read in Psalm 22, 16 to 18. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. They're continually mocking him, offering him sour wine, telling him to save himself. Again, prophecy fulfilled, we read in Psalm 22, 7 and 8. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Pilate even had an inscription made that hung over Jesus. This is the king of the Jews. It was demeaning to the Jewish people. This man, the king of the Jews? But Pilate had made it, and it was staying. Alongside Jesus, two criminals. The first one, he's obviously dying, and Jesus, who is hanging right beside him, is the one who could save him. But no, he mocks Jesus instead. He is blinded to his own sinful condition. The other one, he sees, he fears God. He realizes they are accountable to God and recognizes his sin. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, he cried. Your kingdom. He recognized Jesus as king. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Not only will Jesus remember him, but he will be with Jesus today in paradise. While hanging on a cross, Jesus saves. 
Do you recognize who Jesus is? And what verdict do you make? Make guilty or innocent? Do you see Jesus, do you see sin in your own life recognizing that you need a savior? The sinless son of God came to rescue and to save sinners. We can mock and reject him or we can cry out and believe in him. With Christ, we can have the assurance that we too will be with him in paradise. Let me read to you something that was written 700 years before Jesus' birth. Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened <coughs> not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken. And so Jesus' death draws near. It's the sixth hour, which would be noon, and there was darkness over the whole land. Darkness for until the ninth hour, which would be about three o'clock in the afternoon. No sun, no light, nowhere. Quite an unexplainable and extraordinary event. In the Old Testament, darkness often indicated judgment. And we see that in Joel, Amos, and Zephaniah. And as Jesus suffered, he took this darkness upon himself. And then, miraculously, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. Quite an extraordinary force, seeing that the curtain was about 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and about 4 inches thick. It weighed hundreds of pounds, and it was so massive and heavy that it took about 300 priests to manipulate it. In the temple, the curtain or the veil was constructed between the holy place and the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. God dwelled in the Holy of Holies, and there it was to be entered by no one but the high priest. It was off limits to others. Because of man's sin, he was not worthy to stand in the presence of our holy God. So there a Jewish high priest would stand before the Lord and make atonement for our sins. But now the curtain had been torn in two, divinely from top to bottom, making the way open. The separation is no longer there. Because of the work of Jesus on the cross, things are different. Jesus has opened up the way. Jesus now serves as our high priest. He has now provided for our atonement through his death on the cross. Because of our sin, we're not worthy to stand in the presence of our holy God, but now we can come into the presence of our holy God through Christ. We can now enter and draw near to the throne of grace. 
Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And now it is finished. In a loud and clear voice with whatever strength Jesus had, he calls out his final words. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The fulfilled um, this fulfilled the prophecy that was found in Psalm 31.5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. It is finished. The battle is over. The work was done. Jesus has paid the full debt of our sins. God's eternal purpose is accomplished. He breathed his last. It is finished. And how did those there at the cross respond? Well, first, the centurion. In verse 47, we see that he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. The Roman military officer had witnessed many crucifixions, but there was something different about this man. He finally recognized that Jesus was innocent and praises God. Next, the crowds. In verse 48, they returned home beating their breasts. This was a sign of deep grief and mourning. They had witnessed the darkness. They had heard the horrendous sound of the curtain tearing, but it was too late to reverse anything. So sorrow sets in. And all his acquaintances and women, all his followers, they just stood watching. They were in shock. Praise, grief, shock. How would we have responded? It is finished. Jesus will now be taken down off the cross and be buried. Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy, good, and righteous man, he was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, but he was a secret follower of Jesus. Bravely, he went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Even though condemned criminals were typically denied burial, he wanted to do a proper honorable burial for Jesus. He was given permission and he took Jesus' body off the cross, prying the nails out, laying his torn and bloody body down. It was customary of the Jews to follow burial traditions and follow certain ways in preparing the body for a proper burial. After taking Jesus down, Joseph would have washed Jesus' body, removing any foreign materials, splinters, thorns, blood that had dried and clotted. Luke doesn't tell us, but we can only imagine the tears that would have been flowing down Joseph's face. He cleaned him, wrapped him in a linen shroud, and laid him in a new tomb. And the women, they saw the tomb, how Jesus was laid. And they went home and prepared spices and ointments to anoint his body. But the Sabbath had begun, and according to the Jewish custom, they were to rest on the Sabbath. 
so they would have to return to finish the job the day after the Sabbath on Sunday. It is finished. King Jesus, the Son of God, crucified on a cross. Not because of any crime or sin that he had done. He was sinless and innocent. It was for our sins. The suffering, the pain, the penalty that he paid, it's what you and I deserve. But Jesus took our place. His forgiveness, love, and humility are displayed on the cross. So the question we need to ask ourselves, ladies, is Jesus your king? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Or where do you struggle to believe? The loud, strong voices of this world will try to turn us away from or against Jesus. Continually look to the cross. Ask yourselves, how does Jesus' sacrifice challenge you? The cross helps us to see the seriousness of our own sin. It helps us to see our inability to save ourselves from it. And the cross helps us to see the depth of God's love and the wisdom of his plan. Sitting at the feet of Jesus and gazing at the cross. But as we know, we can't stay at his feet because he's no longer on the cross. Praise God that the story doesn't end here. A story that ends in death wouldn't give way to life. But a new day is coming. Resurrection day. Jesus will rise from the grave conquering sin and death. And grief will turn to joy. And we can look forward to next week's final lesson and the words, He is risen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we... Um, we stand in marvel and amazement, thanking you for all that you endured, for your outstretched arms bearing our sin and shame. You were despised, rejected, beaten, mocked, enduring much pain while hanging on a cross, a sinner's cross. Yet you were sinless, blameless, and spotless. And you did this all for us because of your love, because of your mercy and your grace. We thank you for being obedient to the Father's will and for sacrificing your life, bearing the sins of those who trust in you and reconciling us to God. May we continually glory in the cross and we thank you for the eternal hope that we have in you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.